Welcome to the Vintage Voices Podcast, episode 8. This is Evan Chesser, your host. I'm joined today with our general partner, Abe Finkelstein, and a very special guest, Avi Eyal. Avi is the managing partner and co-founder at Entree Capital. Abe is a GP here at Vintage. Uh, Avi has 20 plus years of experience in the technology ecosystems and whether it's in investing or technology companies, originally South African, is that the accent? Uh, originally from Israel. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. But grew up in South Africa. Uh, Lived okay. in America, the UK. See, the, store, the story is already getting interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyways, you have a number of companies that successfully exited <clears throat> to private equity or acquires or IPO'd. Uh, I see you're on the board or a seed investor at over 15 companies. You know, Monday, Stripe, Riskified, Fundbox many more stash so i will turn it over to abe you want to start to yeah sure so like first of all thank you very much avi i'm excited to talk to you on our first gp podcast Um, wonderful to be here with you thank you so for me avi is really a part of what i would call or we at vintage call the changing of the guard of uh, vc in israel so what we've really seen over the last we had five plus years or so, a lot of new funds, new fund managers coming into Israel after the last recession when it got down to maybe, you know, a dozen to 20 active fund managers were now been ramping up and Avi has been a big part of that. But I'd like to kind of step back and just ask Avi simply, you know, tell us about your background. You mentioned being born here, growing up in South Africa. Uh, it would be great to hear about that from the personal side and then on the business side, how you got into uh, investing into uh, startups. So uh, I was born in uh, Haifa in Israel to a very modest family, uh, lived in a two-bedroom apartment mm. and um, my uh, father was in the Israeli Air Force, my mother was a teacher and um, in uh, 1976, I was born in 1970, in 1976 uh, we left to go to South Africa. Mm-hmm. Anything, just out of curiosity, anything you remember from kind of those first six years being in Israel back then? Yeah, so... It's an interesting time to be here, particularly two, with, uh, yeah. I don't know, maybe you're too young for Yeah, so there, there, but. there are two distinct memories I have of, of, uh, of uh, well, three distinct memories I have of Israel at the time. One was in 1973 in October, mm-hmm. I was three years old, and I distinctly remember to this day exactly how the staircase looked when the air raid sirens mm. uh, went off wow, wow. Uh, during the uh, Yom Kippur War and uh, running down to the basement of the uh, of the apartment block that we that we lived in and to this day that image is etched our second memory I have is of being I think it was a Telnof air base mm-hmm. where my father was stationed at the time sitting in a, the cockpit of an F4 Phantom and, and <laughs> saying to myself wow. I think I must have been four or five and this was my dream. I was yeah. going to be a pilot no matter what, come yeah. hell or high water. And the third thing I remember was just kind of the simplicity of growing up. Mm-hmm. Just no no complexity mm-hmm. involved, just like a kid running around, you know, going to the uh, preschool and, you know. Um, Amazing. And uh, just like a very uh, innocent memory, I suppose, Did you get, in contrast did... to the other two, maybe. So what took you to uh, South Africa? Well, my parents took me. So I was in Durban until the early 90s, so probably when I was about 22, 23. Okay. Um, my parents told me, 
that um, like a good Jewish boy, I have mm. to go to university mm -hmm. and I can be a doctor or I can be an engineer, dot, dot, dot. And mm. by the way, I have to pay for it. Mm. And that's mm -hmm. kind of where my career started because um, I went to university. Um, I won a scholarship um, from Atlas Aircraft Industries, which was mm. at the time the military in South Africa, the similar to IAI in Israel, the mm -hmm. aerospace industries in, in South Africa. And um, I used that scholarship money to open a business, hmm. my first company, which wow. was doing software development, uh, building products. Huh. This is kind of in the days of uh, DBase 3 and Clipper yeah. 87 and things like that. Just where did that come from? Like where you uh, doing things? My father was always uh, entrepreneurial. Okay. Um, so he was always trying new ideas and inventing new things. And oh. I think that some of it came from that. And I think that um, growing up in the Jewish community in Durban, many of the, of the folks there were entrepreneurs. And I think it kind of rubbed off a bit. Hmm. Um, and Why software development at that time? It's, uh, I was very enamored with computers. I'd done, I'd been the first class in my school to do computer science for, uh, for what we call matric for, you know, graduation for your kind of, uh, in the school. And, um, and so it, it kind of came naturally. I was, the truth is I, I tried to be a waiter for, for one evening. <laughs> And like after fantastic. one evening, I just kind of <laughs> threw in the towel. I said, this is just not for me. So, you know, I went to my happy place, which was uh, software development um, and uh, ended up growing a business. I think a year or two after graduating, I sold my first company into an IPO um, called Datatech, mm -hmm. which IPO'd in South Africa and then later on in London. Um, served there for a year and realized that I'm an entrepreneur, not a corporate beast. And so I left and started my second company, my third company, mm. my fourth company in South Africa. Um, two companies were in uh, software or systems or the beginning of the internet. One was doing XML wrapping of EDI transactions and uh, you know in the uh, pharmaceutical and other industries. Another one was had to do with internet marketing in the early mm. days. Um, and then the fourth business was a real estate company, which I helped co-found with uh, some good partners. Did you have any uh, failures? Um, at that stage, no. Okay. At that stage, no. But eventually I sold those businesses, um, except for the real estate company, which I, I stayed involved in, in that for um, the better part of uh, 15, 17 years. Hmm. And it grew into a really big business, um, probably because I stayed away from it. Okay. <laughs> um, and then I kind of went to the States for a couple of years. I got involved in, in a couple of businesses there, which um, uh, I helped start or uh, I helped finance really from an early stage. Were these uh, technology businesses? Or? The okay. technology companies, because I believe that's where the hub of technology was. And if yeah. you could make it somewhere, then... Mm -hmm. Where in the States did you go? Um, so I, I landed in New York, um, transitioned through Atlanta and ended up in uh, Chicago for a bit and then mm -hmm. San Francisco. Wow. Um, and how old were you then? What? So I was about 27, wow. that's okay. 26, 27. And um, that was a, a fairly good success. Two companies uh, got sold to public companies. One company got eventually sold to a private equity firm. Uh, one uh, didn't quite work out um, and I basically got my money back, gave mm -hmm. it to, back to management. Um, and uh, 
from there uh, London for a bit helped out um, with the uh, with the company that uh, was uh, growing and you're still not even 30 yet uh, I'm 30 now yeah okay so, so but now I'm like 30 32 and then kind of back to South Africa my yeah. uh, all my friends had gotten married they were mm. South African yeah. and so it was my turn uh, it was made very clear to me there you go. No better. got on a plane went back to South Africa um, and uh, um, uh, with a lot of luck I, I was uh, I was uh, lucky enough to find my wife Lois, yeah. um, who I met and uh, immediately fell in love with. She didn't mind me, and <laughs> uh, you know, long story short, we now have three children. I have to say, very impressive. Again, you're in your early thirties, so you started companies, sold companies, different sectors, different geographies. You know, kind of looking back then, over that decade, are there, what do you think you learned after all that? I had a I had a really great mentor at the at the beginning of okay. my journey, a uh, philanthropist, uh, you know, and he and he he taught me he he taught me not so much by teaching me but by asking me to do things mm -hmm. and having me figure them out, um, and that's something I've tried to now extrapolate by uh, and repeat by doing it with uh, youngsters that I find who come and work with us. Mm -hmm. um, and we try to hire them young for a year or two and, and give them the real start in, in their lives by, mm -hmm. by putting a lot of uh, responsibility on them uh, and not telling them how to do things, trying to let them figure out and make mistakes and, and, teach, them, um, and teach them that way. Um, and as a, as a CEO versus an investor in companies that you got, you mentioned you had kind of seeded some mm. companies, but were you mostly still involved in those companies at that point? You were active in all the companies that you. I was active in the okay. companies. Uh, in mm. summer, I was the CEO, and um, when I went back to South Africa, um, I started my last business, okay. uh, which was Enterprise SaaS. I was the CEO, and again, I couldn't uh, sit still and wait, mm. um, so I uh, I started this business. Um, company called Cura, which um, over three, four years became one of the leaders in its space. It was listed by Forrester, you know, got in a magic quadrant. We had offices oh. in uh, Boston and London in Australia. Okay. Yeah. Um, so at that point, that was probably the biggest company you had done? Mm, no, but okay. it was, um, it was, it, it started off as, uh, as something that I was going to seed with a few friends and then, um, and take it from there but within two weeks i couldn't keep my hands away and <laughs> yeah. got involved we grew it to about 150 employees um we had three four hundred enterprise customers that included coca-cola globally johnson and johnson globally kellogg's uh bhp bulletin um you know many other many other companies around the world and it was a, a fairly good success we we ran it profitably almost from the first year with a very little investment the total investment was half a million dollars wow. in this business yeah. and eventually we exited uh, during the global financial crisis we we exited to uh, successfully to a public company based out of India okay. who wanted to have um, global presence so this was 2008 that was 2008 2009 okay. and then what <laughs> so. so at that point my partner who and just to 
go back a few steps yeah. when when I moved to South Africa in grade one mm. almost the first person or one of the first few people I met was um, a person in my class and he be you know and we we were friends throughout school and our paths crossed a number of times during our various careers he was extremely successful in what he did mm-hmm. and when I started Cura got uh, involved again mm. and at the end of Cura we kind of said well you know um, being entrepreneur entrepreneurs is okay but maybe there's something after that and that started the journey of starting to invest in companies mm-hmm. and leveraging our knowledge to see if we could build something much bigger and much more sustainable and leverage our, our knowledge base and experience rather than just start the next technology company Got it. but as a as an entrepreneur and a CEO of companies looking back prior to that were you usually it was your affinity to do it by yourself and to work alone or in each case did you have partners yeah like so um, I generally was a sole entrepreneur but I had partners in most of the things that I did mm-hmm. so you met your partner again where did that conversation lead to so what it ended up happening was um, we ended up starting uh, Entree Capital um, where we started investing in um, a number of funds around the world to understand the business mm-hmm. and to build a global network so that, was um, the, that we could leverage. That was the specific strategy and goal. It wasn't yes, right okay, at the beginning. And so the, the goal was learn the trade, mm-hmm. um, build a global network mm-hmm. uh, of like-minded good people and see deals that we could do together with those funds or co-invest invest after those funds had invested got it mm-hmm. and in in a market that had just the you know the global crisis just crashed all markets deciding to go run and invest in venture capital funds. we thought it was the best decision possible right? because okay. you know yeah you know as uh, warren buffett said uh, the yeah. sea uh, yeah. sea washed out and you could see who was wearing shorts and but everybody was saying get out of venture you know, correct and the sky was... is falling you know and and we had a, almost a case study because if you looked at what happened after 2001 where the market was dead and then people started investing and amazing businesses came out of that period um so we found that certain funds couldn't raise money so we became uh, either anchors or significant LPs in those funds. Um, and we found that technology hadn't stopped. Mm-hmm. You know, technology was, was started, the whole on-demand economy was, was starting to happen. Things were, there was a new uh, shift in the way technology was perceived and, and being taken on. And, and that was the opportunity for us. So we thought this is a great time to get involved. Contrary to many others, yeah, yeah, um, sure. and I and I think more mature institutional investors would have been running away at the time. Mm-hmm. But then, people who play more a, at the edge of the risk yeah, curve were were going in. And you were, so, you were doing this out of South Africa at that point, or? so we started off. I was in South Africa. Yeah. My partner was in London, okay. um, and things grew from there. How were you making these uh, fund selections? One was relationships, really good relationships that we had cultivated in the past. So people known to us, uh, those people then introduced us to more people. We did a fair amount of research on funds and what we could find. Um, we had some criteria, mm-hmm. and but most of it was word of mouth. And were they were many of them new funds, or there was a, you know, fund uh, a number? Five? A number were new okay. funds. Um, one or two were 
were older funds that had been around for a while, but most of them were newer, hmm. newer managers, newer funds. Well, so it's uh, what looked most as a super risky market, and you're investing in hmm. uh, that type of market and new funds. That takes yeah. a lot of uh, guts, that's for sure. Yeah, and uh, we did it with uh, our balance sheet, hmm. and um, I must say that 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 portfolio of, of funds have has gone on to be a great return for us, mm-hmm. um, as well as an unbelievable opportunity to work with like-minded people and do deals together mm-hmm. and and build something hopefully great. Um, you know, out of those funds, and out of not of the funds themselves, but out of the relationships with the funds, we ended up doing deals into companies like. Um, SeatGeek, Pullpack, Stripe, hmm. you know, and, and many others. So they served a purpose in and of itself. Not, yeah, and not, I think yeah. some of those funds, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, had exposure to companies like Uber. And, and yeah, like Uber that. and The yeah. Seed. Yeah. Um, you know, Amazing. that specific fund is, uh, is run by uh, probably the best investor I know, David Frankel. Okay. Uh, based out of Boston called Founder Collective. Yeah, and they were in the seed of Uber and that first fund has returned double digit multiples. Yeah. Uh, he's an unbelievable investor and he and uh, Eric Paley's partner and, and now Micah uh, have, have done phenomenally well. They had uh, companies like Trade Desk and, and Pullpack which they got involved in right at the seed. And were you, you were very early on leveraging that you said to invest directly in the companies? So in many opportunities, we, we got the opportunity to invest directly in the company. Mm-hmm. So SeatGeek, Pullpack. They um, were a direct investor. So how is, maybe talk about that transition. You, know, you were CEO, in many cases, solo, C, solo founder running your companies. And now you're giving money to a fund who's investing in companies. You're giving money to someone else to build their companies. Yeah. Was it, was it easy to sit in the background and watch that happen? or I suppose it was mm-hmm. fairly easy because you trust the people you're in business with. Mm-hmm. And... It gave us an opportunity to work with those companies. Mm-hmm. And so we also learned a lot about how new companies were being formed and changing and things like that. So for us, it was a, a great learning experience as well as an opportunity to deploy um, deploy money, you know, relatively early in, in the life cycles of these businesses um, and see great returns because, you know, since 2009, the, the returns that have come yeah. out of the market have been phenomenal. So you mentioned you were learning, like what were you learning? Like what were you seeing, whether it's you know at the company level or from these fund managers? Uh, we were seeing how transactions are done. Mm-hmm. We were seeing uh, valuations. We were seeing deal makeup terms. Um, we were also seeing what those funds were identifying as unique entrepreneurs, what they saw as yeah. great business opportunities, good entrepreneurs, Business models, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we, were, so we were getting a, a seat right in the in the front row. Got it. Of, so, of, of of some of these businesses. So hopefully we'll get to entree and your motto and things like that. Mm. But you mentioned it there about great entrepreneurs. Is there, is there really a way to judge that and assess that, or is it gut? Did you see that they had you know, this system to find those types of entrepreneurs? Again, not that everything is perfect, but a lot of people say, well, it's gut and how you interact with somebody. I think but, it's. Now, having seen it, I think 70% is gut, 30% is quantitative mm-hmm. things like reference checks and uh, history of founders and how they interact with other people, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that the bulk of it is still gut on, mm-hmm. in, in, in terms of entrepreneurs themselves. You know, timing is, is something that you can more or less make quantifiable. 
technology is quantifiable, uh, ten, the addressable market is, is quantifiable, but I think qualitative in a huge way is, is team. Do you leverage your background of having been an entrepreneur and a CEO when you're talking to uh, sure. founders? How do you do that? Sure. So I suppose no different to many funds. We, we come in one of our, our main go-to-markets or main principles in the fund is that we are found for founders by founders. Mm-hmm. We are less interested in the financial return aspects as we are in how do we build a great business mm-hmm. and how do we if I was a founder in, in their shoes, which I have been, mm-hmm. how would I build the business and what decisions would I make? Which is quite different to the way a financier may look at a business. Mm-hmm. And so we feel that sometimes we sacrifice short-term gains for long-term success as a result. Is that something that you can, kind of an ethos you can spread throughout your company, throughout your fund? That's spreadable? Uh, we certainly try to do that. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you an example. When, when I brought on one of my partners now, Iran uh, Bielski, he was, he was working at JP Morgan. He was mm-hmm. an investment banker. So he was very much a financier. And, and the first things that I had him do in the first two years that he was with me was to look at businesses that were going wrong and help them to try mm-hmm. to figure it out like at the coal face. Mm-hmm as well as giving him a business that we had, which didn't have a CEO and making him the CEO to go in and turn it around, hit metrics and wow. build a team around him. And so we kind of made it part of the education. So he, he got an accelerated MBA in entrepreneurship mm-hmm. from the school of uh, Andre Capital. Did you learn that from somebody? Because that sounds pretty unique to me, doing that. With- I don't know. We, it's kind of like, I think how we were taught, how, okay. how I was taught as a, as a youngster to look at things. So. Um, throw them into the fire throw them yeah. into, into the fire yeah, yeah. and um, we now have a new investment team member we we just hired is in the third year at the IDC mm-hmm. and he's joined pretty much full-time and repeat same type same, of process same thing it's great same idea so I I jumped ahead but let me go back sure. a little bit so you're you're now investing in uh, VC funds globally what got you to Israel how'd you get over so here? On the way to London, uh, we decided that we'd stop in Israel for a year or two and great weather, much better than London. We wanted to experience it firsthand. Being Israeli, in some respect, I missed it. And so we came here with the kids. By that stage, we had already started what we called Global Fund One, which was our overseas investing. Um, and we had done a fair amount of investments overseas already. Got it. And when we came to Israel, we started Israel Fund One, right. which is the, the equivalent, but just using our balance sheet investing had, in Israeli companies. Had you companies. done anything in Israel before Israel Fund One? We had done one deal. It actually became fund, our first Fund One company, which was a company called Dragonplay, okay. which we mm-hmm. subsequently exited and, and made a, an unbelievable return on. Were there? Um, did you go in as the first investor in there? Yeah. And did any VCs come in along the way? Uh, after us, uh, Excel Partners came in. Okay, great. Maybe you can tell, how did that go? Um, That went very well. It was tough, it was hard. Um, You know, learning the Israeli mentality and the Israeli way of operating. Mm -hmm. I found myself constantly at loggerheads with a a founder. Mm -hmm. But having said that, um, coming out of the exit, that founder and I are now on very good terms, so much so that we're backing his next start. Oh, wow. So, you know, it's kind of, I think you have to get through the shell the hard shell of the israeli israeli entrepreneur 
we were quite successful. We were extremely successful in that in that investment. So you guys were the seed investor here as you came in from South Africa, came to Israel. What do you think the other investors missed there? Like how come he wasn't able to raise capital um, from other VCs? I don't think he wasn't able to. I think okay. it was just opportunity. Okay. Just the right place, right time. And okay. What we did was, um, it was quite funny because landing in Israel, we had a lot of VCs, Israeli VCs, you talk about the old guard and the old mm-hmm, school, mm-hmm. and the only thing they were interested in showing us the the bad deals, <laughs> the ones they couldn't raise funding for. <laughs> Got it. Um, and it took us a bit of time, but we, we figured that out for, you know, pretty quickly. Everyone was being so nice, right? <laughs> yeah, so nice, but you could never get into the good deals. Yeah. And then we met um, uh, a young chap called Eden Shachat. Okay who had just joined a now defunct a VC that's now defunct Genesis and he he had just joined them with a view of becoming a, a general partner there. Yeah. Funny enough, Eden was the only one who gave us the the honest time of day. Mm. And together with him we did um, our earliest and, and greatest investments in Israel being riskified on Monday. Wow. Um, and Kind of when Eden left Genesis, we continued to finance those deals and be involved and on the board. And um, and I think we maybe contributed a bit to um, to those founders, which allowed those founders to become great successes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the Israel portfolio kind of grew over a period of time. And by that stage, we now have Israel Fund One, Global Fund One. And this was you in Israel and in, uh, in London. In London. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then, so it grows, things go well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then these uh, strange people from across the road from us called Vintage Partners. <laughs> Who's that? For about three years, start bugging us. They see us on cap tables, they see that we kind of uh, invest in good things. and. They keep harassing us about uh, starting a fund. We, we, we try to do it nicely, at least, right? <laughs> with, with, with a smile. <laughs> so, um, so Vintage, uh, we got further ingrained into the local market. We started an accelerator in, in, the, in the local market to try and find deals earlier, to try to give something back to the ecosystem. Uh, that accelerator, Sigma Labs, had um, 10 sessions, 10 waves, we call them. Typically, we went for four or five companies in those waves. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, less is more. And you had a unique model there, I think, because usually yeah. accelerators, and correct me if I'm wrong, they're usually, you're getting options, you're taking a piece of the company, or yeah. that, that wasn't the case here, right? So it was very interesting. We took, we took the view of saying, we won't ask for anything. We won't demand percentages. And at the, at the beginning of every wave, we'd sit down and we'd tell them, this is how we finance Sigma Labs, we had some uh, sponsors, which covered about 50% of the cost and 50% came from us. And we took the view of saying, this is a give back. The one thing we do expect from you is that you do give back from the perspective of helping the ones that came before you and the ones that come after you. And right at the end, we used to say, and if you believe that this has got merit and this should last, then would be very grateful if you donated some equity to Sigma Labs because in five years time or seven years time it could be financing a, a wave. It was quite interesting to see that very few actually gave uh, <laughs> yeah. gave anything. Wow. Uh, wow. And, and it's kind of I suppose it's endemic of a bit of the culture, of, okay. you know. Um, but very few people gave. Um, uh, 
we helped a, a fairly large number of companies. We had an 80 plus percent success rate in companies who who were at Sigma Labs, um, then going on to raise their seed or A rounds. Um, okay. And we had a couple of uh, you know um, good exits from it. You know, one company was sold to Checkpoint, another company was called sold to Snapchat. A number of companies raised significant rounds. Last year, one of our most promising companies that that we backed and um, was a company called PureSec, it was sold to Palo Alto Networks. So it's phenomenal to see how give people the tools and hopefully if you select correctly, we had also a unique selection process. Mm -hmm. So if you select properly and you give people the tools, then they can actually succeed. And we had mentors who worked, um, you know, gratis, Mm -hmm. uh, purely on a give back basis. And they were like, extremely uh, helpful and, and supportive um, and now you've spun that off right onto it so what we did is we spun it off because we were concerned that as we moved into a fund fund two in Israel which we launched two and a bit years ago mm-hmm. um, we were concerned that that to have a fund that wants to make pre-seed and seed deals it would just be select you know there's selection bias and there's signaling that happens and we don't want to signal to four other companies in the same uh, accelerator that we weren't going to invest in them, we were only investing in one. Yep. We worked through a couple of models to get there and we decided best is to give it to someone else to run. Serona, Serona Partners were, and Philip Boazes were, were extremely uh, extremely forthcoming and, and, and they've been good partners yeah, and they've, good they've continued yeah. to run it and we continue to sit it on the selection committee and provide mentorship and things like that. But it's a bit easier to see to see the opportunities. And just to put a little order around things, Entree One was you and your partner and largely your yeah. capital. Yeah. And then this group we've heard of Vintage comes along and twists your arm and tells you you should be going to raise a, uh, a, a <laughs> dedicated fund. Israeli fund. But what really was the impetus? Because it sounded like you had a very good thing going. You yes. can keep doing that, make it simple. You know why so, bother taking money from institutional investors and you've some sure. some of the best in the world in the fund now but you know, why, why did you decide to do that so a couple of uh, a couple of data points on that one is as we grew a team in Israel as we grew as we wanted good people to work with us it was very difficult to incentivize them if they weren't owners mm-hmm. it's easy to pay a bonus and things like that but ultimately a good fund manager wants to be a GP and, and the owner of the fund. Yep. So we believed that as the market became more competitive over the years and as there was this generational shift from from the old way of doing VC to the new way of doing VC, we felt that people had to be appropriately incentivized. And that was one of the big challenges why a lot of the old school VCs haven't made the transition or yep. have found in it succession. difficult yep. in, in succession. Yep. Um, and so we wanted to start that off you know, in the right way, we had the opportunity to attract uh, Rana Khitov, mm-hmm. who's um, who's also my partner in uh, in Fund Two. It'd be great if you can talk about him a little bit. Yeah, and um, Iran was becoming, uh, um, you know, um, much more proficient, and so it made sense to make Iran a partner, bring Rana Khitov on, have a partnership, and. In order to do that properly and, and to build it with longevity in mind, then um, we thought the best thing is to 
is to move to the next step of being of raising a you know a fund which we're still a substantial uh, right. capital provider to but yep. which we have other providers of capital to as well yep. run uh, the segue to run run is was one of the founders of a, a unit in the army 9920 which had to do with satellite um, uh, data interpreting satellite data from the first military satellites in, in the Israeli Air Force and Army. He grew an unbelievable team and became a, literally an honorary alumni of a number of other units, Talpiot 81, 8200. Um, after his serving in the Army, he was one of the first 10 people at Verint, which subsequently grew to a multi-billion dollar public company and he fulfilled uh, every role you can imagine in Verint, except for the CEO role. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the CEO is still there. Mm-hmm. And then he was headhunted by Amdocs, mm-hmm. which is then uh, today a eight or $9 billion company, uh, also listed in the US. Uh, Amdocs was a bit smaller then, I think it was two or three billion, and he was appointed as the chief technology officer, group CTO with a mandate to acquire companies and and build the ecosystem and everything around Amdocs, um, which he then did uh, pretty successfully. He kind of advised and helped uh, acquire a number of companies which which doubled or over doubled the market capitalization. Um, and then he was headhunted by Magma, which was a, a really good fund yep. started by Yachal Zilka and uh, Modi Rosen. I think that they were probably the best fund in Israel at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, really good fund, great um, they were, eye for business. They, they were early backers of Waze, for example, yeah. Yeah, which was very high profile. And um, they were, uh, and, and he worked there for a while. He he found, invested, sat on the board of companies like Argus, mm-hmm. which was eventually sold exit. to uh, Continental for four hundred and fifty million. Uh, Euros and he sat on the board. He found the team, built Innovis, which today is a, a leading lidar company, mm-hmm. um, and also has uh, pretty high valuation. E eight, a storage company that Amazon bought. So he was a very deep a, tech kind of guy. Checked a lot of boxes. What, checked but a lot at of the boxes. core of it, like what you must have met a lot of potential people yeah. to be partners like what was it that drew you to him so you, had to boil it down to something? you know again like entrepreneurs 70 percent qualitative 30 percent quantitative <laughs> so the quantitative he checks all the boxes yeah. he's a deep tech guy he's got unbelievable references um great track record qualitative um he's just a nice guy mm-hmm. first he's extremely bright he's yeah. much cleverer than me or anyone else around <laughs> yeah, him so sure. that's always you know, <laughs> i was taught to hire <laughs> cleverer people yeah. than you are. Um, Clever's being kind. He's, uh, he's con- extremely connected yeah. and he he's a mensch. Yeah. He's an absolute, absolute mensch. And I found that when I looked at a number of other potential managers to bring on, mm-hmm. um, they didn't have those personal qualities of trust, honesty, ethics, morals, uh, mensch mention us as well yep. and and I found that that was I wanted people to work with who mm-hmm. who I can trust and who I can get along with yeah, yeah. Like having a, a partnership marriage. is a yeah. marriage run was at the time one of the two finalists for the uh, chief scientist right uh, in the government um, I'm very glad they chose <laughs> the political animal 
or not the yeah. uh, not the efficient one. Yeah. So uh, we were lucky enough, and and he had agreed with us that if he wasn't going to get the office of the chief scientist role, he would join us. And and the only reason he wanted to do the office chief scientist was that there was a great opportunity to restart and and rebuild that office yeah. to to be more uh, in tune with the, with the market For and sure. the needs. For sure. And I think in some respects his his radical approach to building it from the ground up was mm -hmm. uh, you know probably made people afraid as well Got it. because of uh, you know inherent um, conflicts and things like that that exist so so we were the lucky ones as a result um, and you mentioned kind of about how teams were structured in VC funds in the past and they weren't owners but yeah even just starting a fund here in Israel what did you see that was missing you mentioned you know founders you know your founders by founders but what, what was really missing like why did there need to be another I think Israeli there was VC a, fund I think there was um, a philosophical gap between how US funds had changed over time and, you had, seen Israeli this, and you had seen this from your investments in the funds there yeah and you would see it in in practical terms um there are funds who wanted a majority of board seats mm -hmm. there are funds who wanted um participating liquidation preferences 2x or two and a half mm -hmm. x there were funds that were taking esops in ordinarily high esops to allocate to uh, independent board members mm -hmm. that were appointed by those funds mm -hmm. um, or some of those managers. There, there were these um, trends that, that built cap tables or uh, articles or investment rights agreements which were which just weren't useful mm -hmm. and you, it would layer a whole level of complexity when negotiating the next round. Mm -hmm. It was very much the attitude, the historic attitude of Israelis mm -hmm. of take as much as you can now mm -hmm. versus how do we see this over five or ten years and how do we design it from the ground up to be like that and so we kind of viewed it as being founders we viewed what would I want as a term sheet what would I accept as as a rational economic um, model and so we looked at uh, you know in America there's series um, and and other pretty much industry standards of doing deals and, and we said let's start right at the beginning like that um, and that and, and I think that, that was uh, very helpful and I think that at the time I don't know how many VC funds had serial entrepreneurs who were the GPs mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. many of them were financial people or mm -hmm. people who had come from business so to mm -hmm. speak and had started a fund because there was an opportunity you know, from a fund structuring perspective, um, I think that a fair amount of Israeli funds also, what we witnessed because people were approaching us was that they were taking far too long to raise money. Hmm. You know, it was, um, we were finding that, that for VC funds to raise money took six to 12 months, yep. minimum. Mm -hmm. um, and so we felt that once we understood that we could raise external money, one is it would be much easier because a significant portion is our income. But in addition, the ability to move fast based on your knowledge of people and how they do business overseas, we felt that there's there's something that we understood having invested in the in the funds overseas. And so um, I don't know if you recall, but when we sent you the first version of the limited partner agreement, mm -hmm. 
I think we got four or five comments in total yeah. yep. back. Yep. You know, it was just very a much very straightforward. Yep. You know, just standard. No, no complications. And I think that that was Got key. It. You know, from a fundraising perspective. Yeah. But it would be great to hear, looking at your, you know, five ten minutes in, that we have left, that uh, in your current portfolio, for example, you know, what as a VC you need to look out three years, five years, ten years, like where do you think the market is going? And if you can relate maybe even to a specific investment that you guys did, I tend to think at least my view of it is that you guys are doing very interesting things that are often off the beaten path of what we see or the typical Israeli fund doing. I say that as a compliment. <laughs> uh, but we'd love to get your sense both of the industry that you're seeing it, both in Israel and then you know, kind of looking out three funds so, and then maybe even related to a specific company you guys have invested yeah, in. Yeah, so, so I think that um, in Israel, there, there is a lot of money chasing the regular deals. In other words, building another SaaS company or building another fintech or you know, uh, building another marketing. And, and these are areas that you've been successful in the past. Uh, yeah. Yes, yeah. correct. Yeah. Um, but we've always been a bit contrarian mm -hmm. and we've always liked to think that we've um, been very early in the trend curve or, or pre the trend curve. Um, also, a lot of Israeli VCs don't do uh, really deep tech or hard uh, or hardware or, or things mm -hmm. like that. Um, so, in our fund too, with Run on Board, you know, our view was to look at where people aren't looking. So everyone was doing deals in automotive about autonomous, right. but we all know autonomous is at least you know. 10 years before it's in in yeah. full scale we all know now two years ago it wasn't so clear there was obviously a lot of okay. people thought it was coming around the corner which i guess you guys didn't yeah, feel, i think so. we didn't yeah. feel that yeah. maybe because we were informed by the investments run had made in argus mm -hmm. and innovas as an example so our view was what are the main problems to move to this new age motor vehicle new age motor vehicles are autonomous they uh, you know, will become autonomous over time. They're filled with electronics, they're intelligent, they have electrical subsystems, so the whole powertrain is electric, you know, moving away from gas, etc., etc. Uh, yeah. And so we found a business uh, called IRP, as an example, where what they did is they've developed what they call the software-defined motor, where historically, um, Power and torque were two separate motors, and like Tesla uses two motors in, in, in its motor vehicle. Um, and electrical vehicles had been designed a certain way. And here was a team who had proven that they, in one motor with a slightly different design change and then with a software-defined controller, they could make the motor perform across any range you would like it to perform, mm -hmm. and at a much higher efficiency level. And so no one was interested in yeah. you know building a, a motor powertrain <laughs> business in israel no one was interested in you know um you know software defined motors and mm -hmm. the concept didn't exist really mm -hmm. we, i think we coined the, the idea of the software idea defined motor. motor and and so we backed the business um that was a year and a half ago mm -hmm. wow. we feel that we think that if they can execute every motor vehicle will eventually use their technology yeah. and, and not just motor vehicles because they're now supplying 
Aviation, a big uh, aerospace company, building uh, electric jets. Yeah. Um, and they're building, uh, you know, they nice. they're doing micro mobility things. They're doing buses. There's power generators. The, the use is widespread, from the smallest motor to the biggest and, electrical uh, generators. Tell me about the uh, maybe a few words on the entrepreneur before we go. So, in even more interesting, the entrepreneurs. Um, uh, there's Paul and there's Moran Price, mm-hmm. uh, and Paul is a, it's unbelievable PhD in engineering, just unbelievable mind, um, and interestingly enough, uh, complemented by Moran, mm-hmm. who's also an engineer uh, with an MBA, and she, mm-hmm. specifically she, and I stress it, is is unbelievable. She's working in a very traditional male-dominated environment you know automobiles motors gearboxes you know hard stuff like that and she's winning over you know everyone it's great um it's great so power team building a a great business um and we're lucky to be along for the ride with them why entree Interestingly enough, the, the name originates that when I was first backed in, in business, my first company, I took a loan from, uh, from a philanthropist who just a mind second to none and a really successful businessman and has contributed in immense terms to, uh, to World Jury. Um, he, he, had a, he, he was a, a chef as well he loved cooking and he called his uh, investment buff- business buffet mm. buffet investments and uh, i remember talking to him and he same saying to me you know you should structure your assets and have a trust and etc etc what are you going to call it and i said well if you buffet i'll be entree um, <laughs> funny and that's kind of like yeah. from 1992 kind of stuck yeah, nice and for want of a better word when we started our investing activities this investment vehicle still existed mm-hmm. and I wasn't thinking at the time that I was hope that I was going to build a a well-known name or things like that and so we just kind of you know we, we stuck with it Entree's but, but we, we kind of feel that entree is a yeah. bit out there which in yeah. itself is yeah. uh, is probably uh, of some value as well learned a lot of new stuff today <laughs> Great. yeah this was fantastic thank you very very much and thanks to all of you for joining us See you next time on the Vintage Podcast.